Well, good morning. It is so good to see everyone today. Our brother Ken will be preaching for us, uh, talking about the faith in the coming Messiah, or for us, the Messiah who came. So uh, that'll be awesome uh, before he comes up here. Just want to remind you that in the new year, we will be starting to walk through 1 Corinthians. And if you have not yet, please pick up your 1 Corinthians journal and back. Brother, come up here and present God's word to us. Well, today, today we're continuing in our, our Advent season. Um, last week, Andrew brought the message about our, our hope for the coming Messiah. And today, today I have the honor of speaking with you guys about faith, faith by yearning for the true Passover lamb. We're going to be exploring this today by looking at and connecting three things. One, what is faith? What is faith? Two, understanding the Passover. And lastly, and this is a, a mouthful, I, I confess, apprehending or, or grabbing hold of the working of faith, which, which is what we're saved through, and the object of our faith, Jesus saving us from God's wrath unto eternal life in the presence of the triune God. You know what is really exciting about this time that we get to spend together? This, this hour where the church is assembled and the saints lift up their voices in song and prayer to our time now as, as the word of God is heralded from the pulpit. We're in communion with our Creator this morning. Amen. He's blessing you and me today. And as inadequate as I can feel to proclaim His Word before you right now, I know that whether it's one particular verse in Scripture that you hear, a topic or, or something specific that you've been wrestling with, or if it's the entire sermon this morning, a very real and supernatural work will be done by the Holy Spirit in each one of us today. What is faith? Where, where do many people go when they hear this question asked? Hebrews. Yeah. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So when we hear this, now, it's, it's a direct answer. It's like, well, if you're looking in the Bible for what is this, and, it, and then you go to a passage in Scripture and it says, well, it is that. <laughs> this is a very clear area to go to. Um, but the question I ask then is, is this, a dis, is this a definition of faith, or is it a description of faith? Overall, I would say it's inconsequential to differentiate here in this passage. But there is one area of differentiation that is important to notate. It's whether Hebrews 11.1 defines or describes faith. It's only those who hope in God who really possess it. 
the, the world, the culture, and various societies use this word and have their own understanding and definition of it. A quick search online defines faith like this. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Now, at first glance, that seems to fit with this passage and a basic understanding, but, but there's a crucial difference here. Do you see it? Did you catch it? The, the object of what the world perceives as faith can be anyone or anything. A subjective view of faith would include God as one of the many options for an object of your faith. But a biblical understanding professes and hopes in the truth of what simply is. And that's God as creator and sustainer. What someone hopes in determines whether or not what they have is actually faith. It causes a reaction, a work. It is something you have that causes something you do. We continue in Hebrews 11, verses 2 to 3, reading, For by it, for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You see, the the possession and working of faith resulted, as we read here, in God's approval and acceptance of the people of old. Is this something, I ask, is is this something that all people possess? By faith, these people, these people of old, according to the author, were recognized by God as being righteous. Now, now, if we know the Lord and have any basic understanding of how we are made right with God, it should prompt several questions. Doesn't Isaiah describe our works as filthy rags? Doesn't Paul quote Psalm 14.3 saying how none are righteous, none are good? Why was Abel's offering more acceptable than Cain's? And him commended as righteous because of it. Doesn't Paul also say, by works of the law, no one will be justified? Faith. Understanding of this simple word has such huge implications on our view of God and our life as believers. A right understanding makes us of sound mind. A wrong understanding causes us to speak all kinds of heresies and untruths. Also, if we have in mind the faith described in Scripture, the faith that produces righteousness, we must differentiate from a general sense of the word, from a biblical understanding. Because the works of the world do not please God, but rather earn His wrath. A biblical faith results in God's commendation or approval. It is something that nobody inherently possesses. As Paul indicts of all 
creation. In Romans 3.11, he says, There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So the the question that is really important here is, where does this faith come from and how do I get it? This is where I'm going to answer this simply and biblically. Otherwise, we won't get to the rest of our message today. In Ephesians 2, verse 8. Another very clear answer to a question, a very important question. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul also says in Romans 12 verse 3, to think with sound judgment, each according to the measure of faith, That God has assigned. Saved by grace. Through faith. And it's both that we're completely. And utterly dependent on God for. The the belief and hope in God. That the faith that anyone has ever. Had was given. As a gift by God. A gift that didn't come from within that person and is given in varying degrees based on how God has determined it for your life at particular times in your life. Pastor Andrew describes faith this way. True faith is a gift from God, not a work of self, that causes God's people to depend fully on God and reveals the righteousness of God, not people, for the purpose of our humility and God's glory, bringing about obedience and those who are given faith. This is important as we move on to the next two areas of today's message. If we don't start with a basic and biblical understanding of faith, we're at risk of exercising a different kind of faith. A type of faith that steals glory from God rather than gives it. A faith that ultimately condemns a man to eternal punishment rather than saving him through it. If a third and shorter way of describing this will help, I'll describe it this last way. Faith comes from God and works out from within to bring about our obedience to the glory of God and the joy of his people. Now we're going to move over to the Passover. What is the Passover? We're going to start with this by looking at the historical event and institution of this meal. It's going to be in Exodus 12. If you want to flip over, we're going to read a couple paragraphs here to get this seeping into our mind. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. In the book of Exodus, the tenth and final plague on Egypt was the most devastating of them all. We continue to read through these passages until we get to verse 29 when the angel of death passed through the land. All the Egyptians' firstborn sons and all the firstborn of their livestock died. But the Israelites were left untouched. The angel passed over them because they had spread the blood of a lamb on the doorframe of their homes as God had commanded. The blood of the animals was to be placed on the door frames of the houses the a- the animal meat roasted and the people were to eat it with bitter herbs and bread without yeast also to mention briefly here bitter herbs were used to symbolize sorrow or grief for past sin and their bondage and oppression in Egypt the bread without yeast symbolized leaving in haste And they were to eat the meal quickly while dressed for travel. The feast marked a new age for the history of Israel. Also in verse 6, the phrase, the whole community of Israel is used for the first time to refer to Israel as a nation. The word 
suggests a new beginning. This celebration or feast holiday continued into the new covenant. In Exodus 12:17 we read the Passover was a feast that was to be practiced as a permanent statute. It was reinstituted by Jesus in Luke 22, now referred to as the Lord's Supper. But in the new covenant it is not under the law, but now under grace. In, in John one twenty nine, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. We read that the next day, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the slaying of animals in the Old Covenant instead of their firstborn sons and, spark, and, and sprinkling of blood prefigured the substitutionary death of Christ. John says, look. That's what the word behold. It's like, look with a big exclamation mark. Here he is. He's here. This is our Passover lamb. At the Last Supper, Jesus showed that his impending death would be the ultimate Passover. God's grace and God's wrath would be manifested on the cross as never before in order to accomplish salvation. When, when Jesus reinstituted this meal, He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This new Passover meal, now referred to as the Lord's Supper, is a celebratory meal of remembering Christ, delivering us from our bondage to sin, and is covering us from God's wrath. And as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing is participation in Christ's death, and the broken bread is participation in His body. Now listen to these passages about slavery. And about freedom in Christ. John 8.34 Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God's wrath was poured out on his son, the true Passover lamb. And it is remembered and tasted in the bitterness of the wine, like the bitter herbs used in the bread and the old covenant Passover meal. We proclaim, we proclaim his death in it and are blessed through it. There's such a tension in a celebration that heralds Christ and him crucified. It was the most grievous act ever committed in human history. Sinful creatures murdered the only innocent man to ever walk the earth. Sinful creatures murdered their creator. But it wasn't a random act committed at a random point in history. This was God's plan from eternity's past. Not only that, but it was the Father who put the Son to death. In Isaiah 53.10 we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This spotless lamb was God's perfect plan of redemption for his people. His plan to justly forgive a wicked people by the blood of his son, the image of the cross, is his exaltation of himself throughout all time. Glory to God alone. Now I want us to shift over to our our last item for today. Let's put together a right understanding of faith with a refreshed understanding of the Passover and see how and why this stirs up a yearning in our hearts for what the former foreshadowed, what is now revealed, a real God-honoring, Christ-exalting desire for Jesus. Desiring Jesus. What is it to yearn? What is it to desire this Passover lamb? This is where I want us to apprehend, grab hold of it, the working of this faith, which is what we're saved through, and the object of our faith, Jesus, who saves us from God's wrath and unto the eternal presence of the triune God. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what does God save us from? What does he save us from? It's not Satan. 
It's not others. It's not ourselves. God saves us from Himself. God saves us from God. The justice of God, the goodness of God, the very character of God cannot allow sin against Him to go unpunished. If He did, He would no longer be just. This is why we need the blood over our doorpost. This is why we need Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 3.25-26, to whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How greater are his ways than ours, aren't they? If God simply forgave sin, he would be a wicked judge. But in order to be just... And the justifier, he put forward Jesus as our Passover lamb, our covering. And this new, this this true Passover lamb, we're instructed to put him on. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Every time, every time that I hear this, this putting on of Jesus, I think of Ray Comfort. He's a very well-known evangelist, faithful man of God, who appeals to people symbolizing Jesus as a parachute. And I want to read what he says so that you can also think of it every time you hear this idea of putting on Christ. This is what he says. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put, on, put it on because it will improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first. He cannot see how wearing a parachute on board a plane could possibly improve his flight. After some time, he decides to experiment and see if the claims are true. As he straps on the apparatus to his back, he notices the weight of it on his shoulders and he finds... He now has difficulty sitting upright. However, he he consoles himself with the flight attendant's promise that the parachute will improve his flight, and he decides to give it a little time. As the flight progresses, he notices that some of the other passengers were laughing at him because he was wearing a parachute inside of the plane. 
He, get, he begins to feel somewhat humiliated as they continue to laugh and point at him. He can stand it no longer. He, he sinks in a seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fills his heart because as far as he is concerned, he was told an outright lie. The second man, second man is given a parachute. But listen to what he is told. He is told to put it on because at any moment he will have to jump out of the plane at 25,000 feet. He gratefully puts on the parachute. He does not notice the weight of it upon his shoulders, nor is he concerned that he cannot sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped without a parachute. Let's now analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers, disillusioned, and somewhat embittered against those who gave him the parachute. As far as he is concerned, it will be a long time before anyone gets one of those things on his back again. The second man put on the parachute solely to survive the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him if he jumped without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he has been saved from certain death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude toward those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Instead of preaching that Jesus will improve the flight, we should be warning sinners that one day they will have to jump from the plane. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes judgment. Our Lord, our Lord gave us a standing decree for the rest of time. In Acts 17.30-31, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world by righteousness, by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance Assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, fear, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Seeing our sin, feeling the understanding understanding what an offense we are to God apart from Jesus. This is a gift. Seeing and understanding. Thank you, Lord, for opening my eyes to what a wretch that I am. 
That's why Jesus is so frequently appealed. Jesus is so frequently appealed to those around him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Being saved by grace is God awakening us from death to life, giving us the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Being saved through faith is God giving us the gift of belief, which Paul reminds us didn't come from us. Do not forget that. To have faith in the work and person of Jesus. Now, when we make this appeal to the world, when we leave here and go out as witnesses, ambassadors of Christ, we do it in the same way Jesus did. He who is yours, let him hear. Now, listen. For us, the church, we rejoice and we praise Him for His grace that He's shown us and the faith that He gave us. We honor and glorify God by exercising this faith to joyfully desire and pursue Jesus. Something the world cannot and will not do. As our Savior, our covering, our Passover lamb. When you leave here today, I want you to be assured of this. If you have faith in Jesus today, It's because He loves you dearly. If you love Jesus today, we celebrate together knowing He has covered us from God's wrath. We herald Him today as our substitute, our righteousness. We wear Him. If you have faith today, you have put on Christ Jesus and desire to hold him tight. Knowing as we read in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, you are glorious. Your righteousness, Lord, we meditate on and try to understand and grab hold of. And Lord, we just will always fall short. When we fail to see the beauty in you, the joy that we have in knowing you, Grace, Lord, your grace, it's just profound. A holy and righteous God watches as his creatures rebel against him. And the love that you have for us, that you would send Jesus to rescue us, to ransom us. That we wouldn't face the day of fear and judgment and condemnation, Lord, that we are set free from this slavery to this sin that is corrupting and destructive. You saved us from it. And now we can know you and love you and pursue you. Lord, how greater your ways are than ours. Give us understanding, Lord. Stir our hearts with excitement in this Christmas. What a celebration. What a hope that we have. Lord, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. We are proclaimers of the word that you have sent forth. We pray for all here today. Pray for churches across the world. Lord, we pray for the faithfulness of the persecuted who have a very different type, very different type of setting than we do today. But the excitement and the joy that we unite in in Jesus inspires us all and unites us all to bring forward the same joyful plea. Repent and be baptized, Lord. You are so good. Stir our hearts, Lord. Excite us today. as we remember the Passover, your Passover, Lamb, as we cling tight to Jesus and put him on, knowing that we have been rescued. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.